Welcome to Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me back in Brooklyn talking with Alex Lieberman, CEO, co-founder of Morning Brew. I think he's in New Jersey, he told me. It looks nicely appointed wherever you are. Welcome, Alex. In New Jersey at, uh, at my mom's home. I'm uh, Benjamin Buttoning in life right now. Yeah, it does kind of a vibe of a mom vibe there, but still a classy mom vibe. And can I spill the secret about your mom that I just learned? You can. That, that is fine. Alex is a, a scrappy startup CEO, and he had a chief of staff, which I thought was a little bit much for a, a scrappy startup CEO. Turns out his chief of staff is his mom. It is my mom. And uh, as you noticed from the email correspondence, we've been very tactical and only spilling the beans when... We make the the decision. So she is Stacy Whitman per her email. We go by her maiden name, but uh, she's in fact my mom. We have now blown up her spot, and I also I, well, this is probably too introspective for the beginning of a podcast. But I'm I'm really think I'm rethinking how I imagined <laughs> Stacy Whitman as your mom versus the person I thought Stacy Whitman was, and how I would have treated her differently had I known. Which I, I think is a different podcast altogether. I love that. No, she's definitely going to have the biggest brand out of anyone in the brew. I, I believe that. Let's talk about what the brew is. This is another one of these good Rorschach tests, I think, where you either you're one of the million, two million people who are who are reading Morning Brew and, and you know what it is and you're really into it, or you have never heard of it. So for the latter group, explain what it is. Morning Brew, business media company, founded in 2015 by my co-founder, Austin Reef and myself when we were students in college. The, uh, the marquee product of Morning Brew is our daily newsletter. It goes out six days a week to 2.4 million people, 42% daily unique open rate. So over a million people open it every day. And uh, over the last year and a half, Morning Brew has grown from newsletter company to portfolio of newsletter company to multi-platform media company. And so we started with newsletter, but we've, uh, we've grown up a little bit. Um, and now we do a, a bunch of things. I'm having all these skim flashbacks from when I talked to the folks at the skim who have a sort of similar story, right? They created a, a, a very successful newsletter um, aimed at millennials, sort of explaining the news to them in sort of the language and, and tone that they imagined their, their friend would use if they were explaining the news. You guys are doing something similar with business news. Like you, when I talked with the folks who had created the skim, they didn't want to call themselves a newsletter company, even though that was what their business was. Um, and I get why you'd, you'd, you'd want to say you're a, a multi-product company, but your core, <laughs> your core business, like you said, is this very successful newsletter. Um, I know you've totally. told the story a bunch, but you're in college, you're 2015. Why do you decide you want to make a newsletter slash newsletter business? Because it's not a, 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 you know, these things go in and out of style, newsletters, yeah. um, but I don't think people were clamoring for newsletters in 2015, if I remember correctly. I do think you remember correctly. And I think that as you hear the story, you should listen to it through the lens of Alex and Austin, the college students who knew nothing about media, who like we consumed some media, but we didn't know anything about the industry. We were finance people. And so every decision we made- Your you finance, can... your undergrads, right? In Correct. Michigan. Yeah, yeah. So when you say finance yeah. people, like- you're drinking <laughs> yeah. and, and looking at stocks. I got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we were we were in the business school, undergrad business program at Michigan. You know, I came from a, a finance family. My mom, uh, chief of staff, my dad, my grandpa all worked on Wall Street. And so that was like, that was what I was going to do when I grew up because I wanted to be like my family. And then Austin, same thing. Like he, he wanted to work in investment banking. Again, uh, a lot of people dream of being investment bankers. That was his dream for a while. And I got into my senior year at Michigan. I had already received my job offer to work in sales and trading after college. Uh, had a 
shit ton of free time on my hands. And so I started helping students prepare for job interviews. That's like how I filled up some of my time, that and FIFA. And I would help students prepare by doing mock interviews with them. And I would always ask them the question, how do you keep up with the business world? Simple question. It was the question my dad asked me when I was prepping for job interviews. And every student had what felt like the same choreographed answer. You know, I read the Wall Street Journal and I read it because I feel like I have to because it's a prerequisite. My parents put it in my hand, blah, 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 blah. And at some point after hearing like 20 students have the same answer, I was like, this is crazy. These kids are working their asses off to have careers in business, yet they don't have content that story tells the business world in a fun and engaging way. That was like the selfless part of the story. The selfish part of the story was I had all this free time. I was going to work in sales and trading after I graduated, and I wanted to force myself to keep up to date with the news so my brain was actually functioning when I worked full-time. And so what I started doing was writing a daily business roundup. It was called Market Corner. It had a bear and a bull fighting in the top left corner. It was just clip art that I ripped off Google. And basically, I was spending three or four hours a day reading all the primary sources, like the Journal, The Economist, Financial Times, CNBC, Reuters, et cetera. And I would condense it into these 50 to 150 word blurbs that read like I was talking now. And at the time, I wasn't like tactical about choosing an email newsletter because it wasn't even an email newsletter. It was a PDF that I was attaching to an email every day. There was no website. You had to message me asking me to add your email address to my listserv. And that that was how things went for the first time. And were you giving it away? Yes. Oh, it was... <laughs> in the beginning, I couldn't beg people enough to sign up for it. But then eventually, there were enough signups for me just writing this PDF that I was like, okay, clearly there's some appetite here because there's infinite friction to sign up for this product. You need to message a guy about signing up for his newsletter and then you get it in the form of a shitty PDF. It's a, it's like, a little confusing because there's plenty of free business news on the internet and there's plenty of good business news on the internet. And the Wall Street Journal is not always a zany, zingy thing, but it's pretty readable. It's meant to be consumed by people who are in a hurry. So the idea that, that, that people who want to make a living in business and want important information but can't can't be bothered to figure out how to get the journal or, or other sources and relying on you for it. It's a little hard for me to, to square. Yeah, I, I think what you learn very quickly, um, or at least what we learn quickly, is people consume way less content or like news content than you would think. Sure. The number of people that use Morning Brew as their primary source for news these days is wild to me. Like I've always thought about it as like, this is kind of your entrance to business news and business education. You read this, then you decide where you want to go deeper. But for most people, they don't decide to go deeper. They just stay with what I would call like the modern version of the left panel of the Wall Street Journal. But it's interesting. I think to your point, the journal to a lot of people is readable. But from what students were telling us, they found it actually incredibly unreadable. Yeah, that would alarm uh, Rupert Murdoch and a bunch of other folks. And and I and again, I I I I don't mean to piss on your business and your business model in, in the opening few minutes of uh, no, our conversation. And look, Pissed there's away. there's clearly uh, a market for aggregation, and there's a market for relaying facts that other people have in in a, in a way that is more consumable. Right? Those many versions of that that business have existed for a very yep. long time. 
I'm always just struck when you, you would think that the idea of a vertical, like, and even the skim, right? But let's, that's general news, right? You're, you, you're not really keeping up on what's going on with Kosovo and, and Israel, but you want, want to be able to nod, you know, at the, at the next dinner. Um, but if it's your job, if, if, if in theory you, you, you follow business because you want to be in business, you'd think you'd want to go for the hard stuff right away. So I, I agree and I disagree. I agree that like you work in business, you work in finance, you would assume that someone would want to go as deep as, as anyone to be better informed for their career. But I think at least what I learned was Morning Brew is very much just like, it is the mile wide inch deep dive into business. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, like when I was a trader at Morgan Stanley trading agency mortgages, I wasn't reading the Wall Street Journal to do my job either. I was reading, I was literally reading like messages from other agency traders and lenders like Quicken Loans on their reports. And so I think there's almost like when you're a specialist in the industry, you bypass any like typical mainstream content. You're going for like the niche of the niche, which most people have never even heard of titles of that. And so I think Morning Brew kind of fits into this category of not actually informing you to do your specific job better, informing you so you can have smarter conversations and not look like a schmuck when you're having a conversation with people. So you mentioned you you did go on and, and take that trading job. Yep. For a year and a half. For a year and a half. And then, so when do you decide enough Wall Street, I want to write about people who, who are on Wall Street, which is <laughs> yeah, not usually it, a, common, uh, a common path. Not at all. And I think, again, if you had asked my family, or if you had made my family guess, where is Alex going to be five years after college, media would have been uh, one of the last places they would have guessed. Like They would have been like, oh yeah, he's going to go work on the buy side. He's going to trade at some hedge fund. And I think there are two things that that happened when I was at Morgan Stanley. One is that I felt like I was diluting myself. I was trading during the day from 6.30 a.m. to 8 o'clock at night. I would go home and then you know call from 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock, work on the brew. And I was far more energized and excited about the stuff that I was doing for the brew from 9 to 12. So you have a full-time job trading, yep. which, yep. you know, when you meet people who actually done that job, like they're fried, right? They're, they're, oh, high, they're, they're twitchy and weird. And, and they generally are not going to spend the next three hours uh, on a side hustle, um, yeah. especially in media. So what was the thinking there? Uh, well, I mean, the thinking was we had enough appetite that I wasn't going to just say no to this, right? Like when I graduated from Michigan, we probably had 15,000 subscribers. We were growing pretty healthily. We had an ambassador program, this referral program. And so like, we weren't going to just close up shop on it. But also, you know, I've always uh, considered myself to be like a creative person. Like I need creative juices to be flowing in my life to feel fulfilled. And in trading, I did not feel that at all. I felt (laughs) creatively stifled. And so to me, this was, you know, pretty simply like a creative outlet as well. But I knew there was going to be a fork in the road because while I didn't want to shut the thing down in the beginning, I knew that if I wanted to be good at either job, there simply wasn't enough time in the day. And basically in September of 2016, when I made the decision to leave Morgan Stanley, it was, I just knew it was time to go one way or the other in terms of that fork. And, you know, basically the way that I thought about it is I thought about things in terms of worst case scenarios. And I said, okay, what is the worst case scenario if I go work on Morning Brew full time? And I said, Worst case scenario is six months from now, it fails. Like that is statistically speaking, what's going to happen. Yep. And I said, if it fails, then what? That Like, then what do I do? And I was like, you know, if I haven't burned every bridge in the New York City media or startup scene, hopefully there are other opportunities that come out of that. Hopefully I haven't burned every bridge at Morgan Stanley where I could go back there. Hopefully it's a good business school story. And I just went through these layers and I got like four or five layers deep of options. And I was like, 
if I fuck this up where I have none of these options left, it's not a morning brew thing. It's like an Alex not being a smart human being thing. It's a pretty good strategy to use youth and the fact that you don't have a lot of stuff to give up as a hedge, right? Like if you fail, and I've tried versions of this um, and, and have suggested it to folks, like, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you have a ramen lifestyle to begin with, um, the worst that can happen is probably keep, keep eating ramen, right? <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, and, and you have some optionality, I think, is the, is the phrase you guys use. What was your sense of the, what the media industry looked like in 2016? Because as I recall, people still felt pretty, like there was had been this flurry of money going into companies yeah. like Vox Media and BuzzFeed. As it turns out, we, we, we sort of peaked in terms of uh, investor interest and, and, and the, the Facebook valuation story. But I don't think people realize that then. What was your sense of sort of what emerging media was like back then? Yeah, I um, I may be messing up, messing up my dates, but I remember when like I was first learning about media while doing the brew in college, and then even while I was at Morgan Stanley, it's like you know, BuzzFeed was still like the company to follow. Yep. Vice was still like the company to follow. Being unbelievable at Facebook video was like the sexy thing to do, and also the belief that advertising would work in media was like there was starting to be just like the counter narrative to if you're solely an ad-based business like you're you're screwed and i think generally like these beliefs or like these narratives that i heard suited us pretty well in the sense that like almost like us being naive and just knowing these things like oh video bad raising shit ton of money bad like that's generally how we biased our decisions in the beginning and so i think we made decisions based on like a naive pretty like single dimensional view of the media world so like what morning brew raised money we didn't raise from institutional investors we raised 750k from just like family and friends we haven't done any video yet i do believe there's opportunity in video i'm less pessimistic about video than if done the right way than when we started this but I think generally our early days were guided off of either instinct or just naive views of media from what we just heard from people. So I, I met you last fall because you're one of these guys who wants to meet everyone and pick everyone's brain and and, LPQ. and yeah and and you, you you I'll give you three names that you should call afterwards and you're going to give me five. It was yep, a good, yep. good trade. And you were very pleased with how things were going. And then we hit a pandemic. So how did you guys, how, how have you survived post-March? Yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll first explain like what happened to our business during the pandemic. It was March 15th when, whatever the Wednesday was of that week, March 13th or 15th, we said we were going to do our test uh, quarantine. That test quarantine ended up being full-time quarantine. It was no test. Within a week of that, we started seeing what felt like advertiser mass exodus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we, some night uh, during the week, we we got hit up by our advertiser who was supposed to do a full newsletter takeover the next day, which let's call it costs, you know, somewhere north of $50,000 to take over the newsletter. They said, we're putting all of our marketing uh, on freeze. We're not going to run in the newsletter, not going to pay you. And then within kind of 72 hours, heard a similar story from, you know, it all just goes it, away. It all just evaporates. Yeah, overnight. eight plus advertisers had never experienced that. Yeah, and so there was a period of a week or two where Austin and I were just basically like, "Wow, this, this is <laughs> this is what it's like. What are we going to do?" Because laying people off isn't an option. Like in our head, like that is the last thing we'll ever think about doing. How many employees um, did you have at that point? Uh, we had, let's call it, forty. And you had done like what thirteen million the year before. 
13 and a half, yeah. yeah. And so we like we literally started brainstorming all of these different ways we could possibly monetize patronage model, merchandise, membership, anything we could spin up. And then what ended up happening is I would say more focus since that period of time has been placed on building out a paid product because I think one of the benefits but also downsides of not having institutional investors is like we get to steer the ship. But also I would say when the business financially has been doing really well and been really profitable, the fire under our ass to build a non-ad-based product just hasn't been lit as high because our feet isn't to the fire. We're going to take a quick break, just a quick break, to hear from a fine sponsor, and we'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. And we're back with Alex from Morning Brew. So you had, you had raised $750,000 uh, at the beginning. Uh, by the end of 2019, you're doing 13 and a half. I like that you corrected yep. my number. Profitable on that, but you hadn't raised any other money. Correct. So you had some profits that you were sitting on, but so there was no cushion. There was no no other money coming to bail Correct. you out in March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the only money was the money sitting in the bank from profits and then anything coming in through accounts receivables that we're doing from advertising. What ended up happening is during that period of time, we said, okay, how can we think about diversifying revenue? And also how can we cut costs that are easy to cut, but won't impact the business in the long term? And so one of the things that we cut pretty quickly was paid acquisition. Paid marketing is one of the brewer's biggest expenses, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And that's one of those costs, again, highly variable that you could turn off tomorrow. And so- That's you acquiring new newsletter subscribers. Exactly. Yep. And that's so buying, we, that's buying lists generally. Um, it's basically running ads on Facebook mm -hmm. and then getting people to click through to our landing page and okay. then sign up. And what we did is we basically took that budget from, let's call it mid six digits, uh, six figures uh, a month in paid marketing to close to zero in April and then weaned it back in May and so on. And so that basically all of that the goal was for it to go to the bottom line to continue to build up cushion. And also, there was le way less incentive to spend on paid acquisition if advertisers weren't going to compensate us for growing our list. Right. So you you were doing what all the other advertisers doing, which is a economic crisis hits, you stop advertising, right? Every, yep. every, a lot of, a lot of be, luckily, we haven't had an economic crisis in a long time. So a lot of folks were surprised to learn in the spring that the first thing everyone does is you stop spending on advertising, but they've all learned. Yep, exactly. So that happened. And then what I would say is by the middle of April, middle to end of April, things started to normalize. 
And I can't explain. Yes, I can't explain what what the reason was. Maybe it was because just more questions were starting to be answered about COVID or quarantine or that like the new normal, at least there was some form of confidence that we would be in this kind of quarantine environment for a long time. But I would say by like the end of April is when advertising started to normalize for us. And where we are right now, like today, advertising, knock on wood, it feels pre-pandemic. So you're back to sort of where you were at the beginning of the year, you think? Correct. How, how are, uh, so if you did 13 and a half last year, what do you think you're going to do this year? So this year, um, we'll do something right around 20. Sounds, there are a lot, a lot, of, a lot of people who would like to say that their pandemic numbers are a lot bigger than last year's. Yeah, so something around 20, um, and then, you know, the profit margins on that will be pretty much the same. So last year was 13 and a half, and then three and a half in profit. This year, similar margins. And so, yeah, I mean, like in terms of financials, things have really come back um, in a meaningful way. And now, I would say for the first time ever as a media startup, so much of our focus is planning, planning and organizing, which is not part of the vernacular in the early days of a startup. But now it's a lot around planning and organizing. So we say not just how do we hit 20 this year, but if Morning Brew wants to do 30 to 35 next year, how do we have the product roadmap and the hiring roadmap to support that growth? And that does now include a paid business or a paid so, yeah, yes, thing? The, yes, a, a paid thing. It hasn't launched yet, but yes, we're working on a paid thing. And what I can say about the paid thing is it's not going to be a paid news thing. It's going to be um, it's going to be a membership, which I guess is just a sexy word for a bundle or a subscription that has multiple things these days. Uh, but it's not going to be a news membership. We're not going to be competing against the New York Times. And it's part of the appeal, again, of the skim and and you guys, right, is there's news there, but also you're in a club with a million other yep. people, but you're kind of like-minded and you have shared interests. And so I don't know what you're going to give them for their money, but you'll tell me about it eventually. Yeah. I'm also having flashbacks to the time I talked to Alex Mather at The Athletic. I'm just doing my old interviews now, um, where he's explaining this this amazing business he's got where he's throwing off cash and it's working really well and it's profitable. I'm like, this is great. You don't have to raise any money. And you, know, you can keep all of, you keep the entire business for yourself. Yes. And then goes out and raises a pile of money. So are you going to tell me that you've raised a pile of money in the next six months? Uh, no. Because? No, we- because we we luckily don't have to. Um, I mean, like, again, if there was a reason to, Austin and I are not anti-raising money. We're anti-raising money as a media business because if you raise money as a media business, the trajectory through which I think you can expect to grow and the trajectory through which an investor will expect you to grow, I think are just naturally disjointed. If we were to say Morning Brew starting, you know, a SaaS company and we're raising for that and it'll be aligned with venture investors. Okay, like I would start to question why is Morning Brew better positioned to start a SaaS company when that's not our competency? But at least I think raising the money could make more sense. But no, we're not, we don't anticipate raising money in the next six months because we are able to fund the business right now with our profits and we're able to fund our paid product with our profits as well. And you're going to grow and you're just not going to have a hockey stick, um, right? Which you would need if theoretically, if, if you took on the venture money. That's sort of the, the problem. And, 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 and you've learned that there is no way to sort of, automa- you know, there's no magic scaling for media. You still have, Someone no. still has to type the stuff out and distribute it, and, and you can't just uh, sort of rinse and repeat. Yeah, uh, we're, we're okay with non-hockey stick growth. And honestly, like, you say we are able to go 20 to 30 next year. To, for Austin and I, like, our view is, like, that's fast enough growth where, like, why, why are we asking to 
grow more than 50% Mm -hmm. in a year. Yeah, I think the hardest challenge for us is going to be, again, not just because we want to go from newsletter company to media company, but at the end of the day, as we scale our business, one, there's more opportunity to do more than just news and newsletter. Like our audience consumes content in other places, but also if we want to grow our advertising business, there is only so much advertisable real estate that we offer right now. A newsletter is quite literally finite. And so we have to think about both from a business perspective and a reader perspective, how do we increase real estate to possibly grow our revenue number? So that's making more, that's verticals, right? That's, a, that's the podcast. You're sort of just making adjacent to media, but with a similar vibe. By the way, I should, I should plug my podcast appearance on your podcast with, uh, with Kinsey. But yeah, yeah. so you got Reed Hastings. Is that, is that your biggest get? Uh, to date? It's definitely up there. I'd say Reed Hastings, um, Meg Whitman, or Ray Dalio. Yeah. Those are top three. And did you guys pitch Reed? How did, how did that how did that one come about? So I believe what happened was we pitched Reed like four or five months ago. Yeah. At the time, they you know, his comms team wasn't interested, and now he's doing his book tour. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, obviously when book tours happen, there's just more appetite. And uh, and so that's what ended up happening. I just like the idea that uh, that you started this thing in, in in the dorm room at Ann Arbor, and now you got Reed Hastings trying to reach your audience. That's a pretty good story. No, it's 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 really cool. And I think I think at the end of the day, we just have to be super cognizant of the fact that we up until now have learned how to do one thing really well, which is newsletters. Like write grow, sell newsletters. And as we grow as a business, we are going to have to build other competencies. And I think we have to be really intentional about how we add those competencies so we don't fuck it up royally. You know, Reed Hastings, your your guest on your podcast, says that singular focus is what has allowed him to succeed. This is true. He, uh, I would say the uh, the difference in the, the, the global content market versus the <laughs> daily newsletter market is just a little bit different in size. Didn't you have people saying, don't get into media? It looks like a fun business, but there's no money in it. Go, go, if you, go make money doing something that's not fun because that's where you actually make money. Well, I, I think, you know, again, when I made the decision to go do this full time, I wasn't talking to people in media. Like I didn't know any media people. I was talking to my family. And it was like the classic, you know, my mom was really nervous about it because I would say she's just more traditional and expecting like a, a finance path. And, you know, it's clear what the trajectory is and how you can make money in that if you stay in it. Whereas my grandparents were like, you know, fuck it, do it, whatever you want. And I feel like that's just a classic dynamic, uh, in, in family units. But, um, I did, there was, there, (laughs) there was no media person in my ear. I didn't know media people at the time. Now, you know, a lot of people. So you you have this great story, this great trajectory, making money, survive the pandemic. What's your biggest screw up? What what do you want? What's, what do you want to do over on? So I think the, the first thing is, I mean, just in general, messing up hires. Like I, I, while I, I think we've done a good job with some hires, I think, I think they're just things that we, we've learned over the last year what leads to making a bad hire. And I think generally what pisses me off the most or where I feel like I can actually have, I could have made a different decision is when I make a repeat offense. And I think where we have made repeat offenses before is when you rush a hire. So especially when you're growing fast and you're doing 50 different things, hiring is a really exhausting process. And 
it's like a pretty defeating feeling when you get two or three months into a hiring process for a role and the three people you think could be great candidates, like one says they took another job, one wasn't as good and the other, you know, ghosts you. And you're now at the end of three months, you're like, the pipeline's empty. What do I do now? It is so easy to make the mistake of you start the process over filling the pipeline and you end up saying yes to a candidate who potentially wasn't the best candidate, but because of your fatigue seems great. And I think we have learned from it now, but that is where we have gotten burned in the past. And um, I think I read in in one of the stories, um, most of your hiring right now is on the business side, right? You do not, you have a pretty lean uh, edit staff. And so most yeah, of your investment's we, we, going on the, on the business side. So what I would say is up until like now, most of our focus ha- had been in growing out the, the sales org. So the sales org today is, 2x the size of the whole company in January of 2019. So January of 2019, the team was nine people. And now the sales org's 20 plus. So up until now, the the business side of the house has been the focus for hiring. But now going back to like what I was talking about with you before, which is we need to create more content real estate, not just in newsletter form in other places. uh, I would say we are playing catch up necessarily in ramping up hiring on the editorial side both on the B2C side and the B2B side. So now that you've been around in media, I just want to bring it back to this first conversation we had, um, and you do know a bunch of people. Who do you trying to emulate? You're not trying to emulate Reed Hastings because he does one thing. Uh, yeah. who, who have you met and said, oh, that guy, that guy or girl has, has nailed it, and I want, to, I want to do what they did? Yeah, so two examples come to mind. Rich Antonello at Complex. Um, I think that like we live in the age of franchise building and building brands on the backs of personalities, either individual personalities or teams of personalities. And I think with like Hot Ones and so many of their franchises, Complex has done an exceptional job of basically just like building each of these given shows into their full-on brand mm-hmm. that uh, transcend a singular medium. And I think that's really hard to do. But once you do it, if you diversify and have enough of them, it is a great point of leverage. And so I'd say Rich uh, and what they've done at Complex is pretty awesome. You definitely have a, you got a Rich Antonella vibe. He was on our podcast as well, back back when you could meet in person. He's, yeah, he's I, an entertaining I talker. I, I can't remember if he's from Jersey, but I think it's the Long Jersey Island, I think, but yeah, close yeah, enough. It, East Coast. And then the second one I would say is, and I want to be very clear uh, in their content strategy rather than like the subject matter of their content. I think what uh, Eric and Nardini and Barstool have built is incredible. While I think I will leave it to the listener to form their own views around like the, the subject matter of Barstool's mm-hmm. content. Again, I think their ability to build personalities and then also monetize those personalities in many ways, not just through advertising, just shows the value of building obsession with a given brand or franchise and the the possibility that exists in not just uh, making money through ads if you do that successfully. And by the way, I think in a business media company, that opportunity, in my mind, even feels more valuable because the type of things you can monetize people with isn't just merchandise. It can be really high value products beyond just advertising. Yeah, I, I was also thinking of Barstool when I was thinking of your company and sort of the idea that there's a, a community of like-minded people and there's some aspirational qualities there. We, we target psychographics, not necessarily just demographics. And, and uh, are you? Do you guys jump on day trading? Is that <laughs> is that is that a morning brew product? Uh, no, we are not doing as much as, uh, I find the Davy day trader thing, uh, entertaining. 
uh, we have not jumped into day trading. What I will say is inevitably- It kind of seems create, like you should though, right? I mean, you got a million people. Some of them want to gamble on, on uh, uh, Kodak. I just morally- can't get there. Um, uh, I think Alex, that, that is the correct answer, but I did not expect to hear it. So good for you. I, I, yeah, I mean, I just think at the end, of the, I was talking to my sister's friend earlier, someone who really smart person, but has never like really spent time thinking about stocks and investing and markets. And she was just saying how like how much fun she's had during the pandemic, like just what she called quote unquote gambling mm-hmm. on the markets and on Robin Hood and how like her Peloton stock crashed, but she got in early and now it's going to crush it. And like that statement amplified by a million people scares the shit out of me. And so what, what I'll say is I see us creating more content around investing or money broadly, but I think day trading is at least one of the last places we would touch. I think that you are going to have a day trader uh, uh, vertical very shortly, and then you're going to sell to a casino company in six months. Or I might go to work for you sooner or later. So any one of those would there be interesting go. options. Alex, you've been great. Um, I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So Morning Brew, there's a podcast, there's a newsletter, multiple newsletters. Um, You probably know about it already at this point since you've been listening to this podcast. Thank you for your time, man. Thanks, man. Thanks again to Alex. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks again to Zach, who produced this episode because Jelani got a well-deserved break. Joel for editing. Our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. And you guys for listening and giving me good ideas all year long. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.